Micah chapter 5. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Micah's right, right there in the middle, right between those books. And as you're turning, I want to want to draw your eyes, though your eyes may be on your Bible, but you'll notice this screen behind us with this word, insignificant, right? It's kind of got this, uh, like, wow, to be in church, to be singing about God, if there's one word that, that I wouldn't use to describe what we're talking about, it wouldn't be this word, insignificant, and that's the irony of it. Because God has chosen to use things that are seemingly insignificant, low, small, unassuming, to put to shame the strong and the wise things of the world. This is the way our God operates. And Micah highlights this as we're going to talk about it today. Things that seem insignificant but are very significant. You know, it's snowing. We're driving. This is fresh on our mind. It amazes me that you could zoom in on a tire and, and not even see anything there. Just the, the absence of rubber between rubber can make a difference between you gripping the ground or sliding. At that moment, something that seems insignificant that, that you can't even notice from 10 feet away, some of you can, you got an eye for it, would make such a difference. I even, when they come and they, you go to the mechanic and they check your tire, they have that little, little gauge that they, they put to see if your tread's high enough. And, and literally, it's, it's, like, it's like this, and your tread's like just a, a millimeter below. And it's like, yeah, that's dangerous. It's like, come on, are you kidding me? It's just, it's just, it makes a difference. And you know the difference if you've ever had snow tires on and you've been able to grip the ground going around the curb versus not. Such a small, there's something else I'm thinking about. Such a small green little, little uh, uh, shreds of green leaf that have been sprinkled on tops of certain foods, salsa. So, so small, such a, such a little amount of it. Some of you love it, but if you're like me, you can't stand it. It's called cilantro. So seemingly insignificant, but the effect is extremely powerful. For me, it's like taking a, a bottle of Dawn dish soap and just like dipping it in my mouth. And I'm like, this little speck of green is going to be significant, though it seems so small. You see where I'm going with this? The small things can make a difference. Actually, God cares about the small things. He says, whoever's faithful with little, he'll make faithful with much. And we know the Christmas story, the, the smallness, the insignificance, and the littleness of Jesus coming into the world so, so subtly, quietly, and so un, unkingly in our minds. Micah chapter 5, we're going to learn about the insignificance of God that's more significant than anything we could ever imagine. Micah 5 1 says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
Do you know what's not insignificant? Is, is living on planet Earth and it being organized into its different nations and each nation having a king or someone over it and us trying to live on planet Earth together, but there's constantly fighting, constant instability, constant war, constant sin seeming to rule, constant death, constantly things to be scared of. You know what seems insignificant that's even smaller than cilantro is bacteria and germs, viruses. We can't even see, yet the effect is immediately known when it gets into your body and it begins to take over as we see death and disease rampant in our world, constantly a reminder, man, something's wrong here. Our our phone's allowing us to to be up to date with all the depressing news that's happening everywhere around the world. We cannot get away from it. The world is unstable. No one would disagree with that. So this morning for Christmas, three things Christmas helps us remember as we tend to focus on the instability of the world. That's what we want to look at from Micah 5. Three things that Christmas is going to remind us to lift our hearts, lift our spirits, keep us focused on the summit. So now, let me give you some context where we are in Micah. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was on the scene. 700 years before Jesus, Micah wrote this. 200 years before Micah wrote this, David was king. We get the timeline, here we are, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, 700 years ago, where we're reading here, 200 years before Micah, David. So there's been 200 years of kings in Israel, and things are starting to wind down for the kingdom of Israel when Micah writes this, during the same time as Isaiah. And what is going on? When Micah writes, you have Israel and you have Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And by the time Micah ends his ministry as a prophet, you're going to see the Assyrians come in. Sennacherib is going to destroy the northern kingdom, completely ruin it. It will cease to be anything. Micah even says, and he prophesies, that the the fields of Israel will be turned into vineyards for the enemies. And they will be taken into slavery by the Assyrians. The Assyrians will also ransack the southern kingdom, but the southern kingdom will not be taken into captivity yet. They will remain because they're a little bit better than the northern kingdom. Judah, uh, to, to some degree, still honoring God by some of their kings. But not long after this, the Babylonians will come in and take the southern kingdom and they will go into slavery and captivity as well. First thing we're going to see here that Christmas is going to remind us is that earthly rulers aren't the answer. Earthly kings are not, have not, and never will be the answer. Now, what I'm not saying is that they're not important. Read Proverbs 29 and you'll see the wisdom of God talking about the importance of having a good ruler over people and the misery and the torment of being under the under the leadership of someone who is a wicked king. But when it comes to what is the need and the help and the hope for the world, it has not and will never be 
earthly rulers. Look what's happening here in verse one of Micah five. This is what Micah says to Israel of the northern kingdom. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Basically, Israel, get ready. Siege is laid against us. It's coming. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel, which would have been Hosea at the time, on the cheek. This is a picture of humiliation, of defenselessness, that the enemies are going to come and they're going to humiliate Israel. And they're going to do it by humiliating the very king that is over you, that's unable to protect you during this time. Ooh, this does not sound fun at all. But, but why is this happening? Leading up to this point in Micah, Micah has been actually giving prophecies against Israel because they were wicked beyond belief. Actually, Micah is the book that is popular for giving the verse about God saying what's required of you, O man, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, which is exactly what the kings and the government of Israel were not doing. They were totally oppressing the people of God. Let me give you a description in Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So you get the picture of people who are in control, who are literally premeditating wickedness. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. The wicked, evil oppression of a government against the people. God is a God who sees and he sees it and he will deal with it. This is not how my people should be. I'm going to deal with the wickedness that is pervasive in my land. And I've given you time and time and time to repent, but it's going to be dealt with once for all. And so this is the prophecy that is coming that Micah is bringing. But now we read it thousands of years later, 2,700 years later. What are we learning from it? What is Christmas reminding us as we reflect on this man? Sinful, imperfect people can never lead us into the victory that only Christ can earthly kings, earthly rulers are not the answer. And that's important to remember as we are constantly, constantly living in a time of instability. The temptation would be that our heart would be placed on an earthly ruler as somehow our hope Scripture says this, pray for your leaders and those who, so that it may go well with you in the land, so there may be peace. Yes, there's a desire for us to here and now experience peace. Who doesn't want to experience that? We must pray, be on our face, praying that God would work through these people who have power. But something that's also indicative that we learn from Scripture is that as long as imperfect, sinful mankind is in power, oppression will continue. But with Jesus, oppression shall cease, Right? Isn't that something we remember in scripture? Let me remind you of some things. God did a lot of work in the Old Testament to make this picture clear for his people. Right? He, he let them experience uh, slavery in Egypt. They get to experience what deliverance felt like. But God brought them to the wilderness and tested and their hearts were never truly turned to God. But then you have these, the people in Joshua whose hearts were turned to God and they trusted him. They looked to him and they obeyed him and they experienced a victory 
Joshua being the same name for Jesus, being a type reminding, hey, when you have the right leader in charge, the one who represents Jesus pointing to my son. But then after Joshua dies, the people have no leader and they go into the time of judges where everyone gets to do what's right in their own eyes. And God is letting humans experience time and time and time and time again, over and over and over of the natural discourse of man is to go to forget God and to be oppressed. And they would cry out to God and God would deliver them. Every single time, cry out and God would deliver them. After the time of the judges, Samuel being like the final judge, God said, I'm gonna bring a king. I'm gonna be the king for the people. I'm gonna be their king. Samuel's excited to be able to share this with the people, but remember what the people did? The people basically fought with Samuel and they said, no, 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 give us a king like the rest of the nations. And so Samuel goes to God. He's like, God, what are they doing? They don't want you to be a king. They want a king like the rest of the nations. And God says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Basically give them what they want. And Samuel goes back and he says, listen, if you want a king, here's what he's gonna do. He's basically, he gives this detailed list. If, if you want a king like the one you want, he's gonna oppress you the whole time for his kingship. He's gonna take what's yours and he's gonna make it his. And still all the more the people cried, give us this king. And so who was the king in the choosing of the people? It was Saul. And so God let them have Saul. But towards the end of his reign, he lost the anointing of God because he did things his way instead of God's way. And God said, I'm done. I've rejected Saul. I'm done with him. Samuel, I want you to go find now, now that the people have learned what it's like to have the person of their choosing, I want them to experience my king. And what happens? He goes and he finds David. I'll talk a little bit more about David here in a little bit. But even amongst David, as the king who was wonderful and expected, who represented Jesus, he himself was still a man and imperfect. And the last half of his kingship was filled with torment, committed horrible sin. And the Lord said that the sword will not pass from your house and David experienced much, much pain. Though his legacy lives on in the covenant that God made with David and the promise that the king would come through your line and your lineage and would sit on your throne, David, because you, David, are the man of my choosing for the people. And you represent the one that is to come. The one that I cried out when my people were in Egypt and I said, give me my son, free my son from Egypt. Who is he talking about? Jesus, the one and only son of God is gonna come through his people. So of course, God is gonna preserve his people so he can have his son. Earthly rulers are not the answer. Let me share one more with you. If you go through the kings for 200 something years leading up to Micah, first and second kings, first and second chronicles detail this, you'll see, you'll see primarily evil king after evil king after evil king, but you have a few that are really good that, that turn their hearts to God and they lead the people well and there's peace and God is very pleased with them. But even amongst most of the good ones, there's still some things that are like, yeah, but they didn't this. They didn't do this. There's one among the kings who was the littlest of all, who was the most stellar of all. Who was it? You guys know? The littlest king of all, the youngest king of all, who was the most stellar of all. Josiah. Josiah became king when he was eight, the scripture says. 
Let me read to you the description of this king. 2 Kings 23. Moreover, moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household golds and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Yes, that's the king we need. But look what the scripture still says. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah. Because all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him, and the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Wait, wait, wait. We finally got the one who did it right, and it still didn't stop what was coming? No. Because there is one great problem of man that no regular man will ever be able to solve. And it is the problem of sin, the ultimate deliverance that people need. And God gives us these shadows, these tangible earthly experience so we can better understand the spiritual need. Like slavery in Egypt reminds us like the greatest slavery of all is the slavery of sin. And like God delivered them, he will deliver us. How is he gonna do this? Not by an earthly ruler. We come back to Micah. Christmas reminds us earthly rulers are not the answer. Though they're important, though God wants us praying, though we should wish and seek and do what we can to to be the type of leaders so God would put us in that position who would do justice, walk humbly, love mercy. When it comes to what the answer is for the world, it's not gonna be earthly people. Second thing Christmas reminds us when we're focused on the world being unstable is this. God's humble shepherd king is what the world needs. It is God's choosing, God's man, the humble, little, seemingly insignificant shepherd. That's what the world needs. Look what he says here, verse 24. I mean, verse two of five. He says, but transition, bad news. I know it's not fun to hear, but. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one is who to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Oh, what beautiful words. You see these words quoted by the wise men in Matthew 2. When they quote this verse, but they quote it differently, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are not too little, they say the opposite. So whether we don't know why Matthew 2, 6 in the New Testament is quoted differently than this, it could have been Matthew himself just inserting like, hey, we know the real answer now. Bethlehem is not insignificant. Reverses it, puts the positive spin on it. But this is how they were able to know where he was going to be born. The Messiah, the king, and Herod inquired about it. This was the verse that was quoted. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Stop. We remember we're 700 years before Jesus at this point. You and I, we hear Bethlehem, we immediately hear the Christmas story. Immediately we hear it. We think Christmas. We have the picture. That's not what they're thinking when they hear Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Let's, let's be Israelites together, Jews together. Let's, let's assume their position. And you hear Micah the prophet come and he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, what immediately are you going to think of? Let me tell you what you're going to think of. You're going to, your mind's going to go back 200 years to the house of Jesse, which was David's father, who was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. And you're going to think of Jesse, the father of David, in comparison to the father of Saul, who was a prominent rich man, and, and Saul was the most handsome and the most tall of everyone. And you're going to remember the story of how the humble, little, insignificant way David came on the scene. And what happened? Samuel goes to this Ephrathite, this Bethlehemite, to find the king from one of his sons, right? And God has him go down this list of all the sons. Wow, he's tall, hugged, and handsome. Must be him. God says, no, it's not him. I've rejected him. It's not him. So he goes to the next one. And you're thinking, God, why don't you just tell him who it is? Why? Because this lesson is important for people to learn because we don't naturally think the way God does. It goes through all the sons that would have been the oldest and most up to the standard according to our standards. And it's like, uh, well, God's rejected all the sons of Jesse. Is there not another son of yours somewhere? He's like, well, I've, I mean, my, I've got David. He's, my, he's tending to the sheep. We'll bring him in. This little shepherd boy. Ding, 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 ding. What do you think about the Israelites who are hearing this? You're thinking about the Bethlehemite. You're thinking about the Ephrathite. You're thinking about Jesse and the oh, insignificant way the anointed king of Israel came in as a shepherd boy, the littlest among his brothers. And this is also going to make you remember, oh yeah, David the king who was little, who when he wore Saul's armor, it was too heavy for him. Like a little kid wearing like a double XL shirt. Like he looked goofy in it, so he takes it off, right? And he goes out and he slays the giant that all the Israelites were terrified of. And he proves the power of God through weakness and seeming insignificance and smallness. So when Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, you wouldn't be thinking about the Christmas story. You would be thinking about the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and how insignificant Bethlehem is, and how insignificantly, seemingly, the way David came in as this king that put to shame the enemies of God, because this was God's king. A man of God's own choosing who were too little to be among the clans of Judah. He says this concerning Bethlehem and Micah, from you shall come forth for me. You see this? This is God's doing. This is for God. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
And then it says this, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. That term of old is actually a saying you can find uh, moved around about the Old Testament, and it does seem to harken back to the, to the 200 years ago. It seems to do that. And then ancients of days, it seems to also make the mind go back to one who has always been here, who has always been around. It's going to be God himself who is the eternal one that's going to be the ruler of Israel, and he's going to come from Bethlehem. Ephrathah. Ephrathah meaning fruitful. And then you see this theme throughout the Old Testament of God being frustrated by the fruitlessness of Israel. Salvation was supposed to come through them and from them, but instead it showed that man, man cannot do it. We need a savior. We need a king who is not bound by sin. We need God himself to show up in the flesh. And that's exactly what he did. Now, turn your, turn your minds with our minds to 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and the way Jesus came. You see, you see first the angels and God appearing to these very lowly people. People who seem young virgin girl, people insignificant, unknown even using very, very older, seemingly frail people to, to experience the Savior. Read through the first bits of Matthew and Luke, and you meet these people who are, who are, who are seemingly insignificant. And then his birth, born in a pool of blood, outside of the inn, in a manger, in a very unkingly way. What is God doing? as a baby and grows up in the fear and the admission of the Lord and he becomes the king we all desperately need. Would you turn with me to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God is in the business of doing things the exact opposite of the way the world would do it. When Samuel went to the house of Jesse, you know what God said to Samuel as Samuel's confusingly trying to figure out which king was, you know, and then ascribing the anointing to the wrong son. God said those famous words to Samuel, I do not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It's the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul says this, for the word of cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world looks at the gospel of Christ and they're like, what? Where is the one who is wise Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, 
and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he makes it personal for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The story, the greater story of the Bible that God's painting is this this visual that you and I get to see and experience that truly proves not us, him. Weak, strong, not able, able. I must decrease, he must increase. Weak, 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 I need, I need help he can provide. Only one that can provide. The world is living in the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. All of us are until Jesus comes along and shows us how things really are. And this beautiful story is helping us understand Christmas reminds us that earthly rulers aren't the answer, that God's humble shepherd king is. And then finally this, the third thing. Christmas reminds us that God's deliverance comes in his time and in his ways, but it always comes. Now we need to go back to Micah to understand verse three here. He says here in verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time when he who is in labor, when she who is in labor shall, has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel. Let me read it again. Therefore he, God, shall give them, Israel, up until the time. So God is giving his people over to destruction and slavery to await a time when who? When she, Israel, collectively, specifically the Virgin Mary, who is in labor, has given birth. Then, at this time, the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and that is continuing to happen still. Satan has Israel's eyes blinded and we know we're awaiting a time when God will gather all his people in. That's why God's patient right now because he has his sheep and his people that he's gathering and he's going to loose the blinding on God's people, the Jews. And we expect to see a mass gathering of Israel even to God as we await his second advent, his second coming. Now we need to go back to chapter four for a little bit. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying trying to prove this point that I'm making. God's deliverance, 
comes in his time and his ways. Chapter four. Look at verse nine. Micah saying to Israel, now, currently at the time, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in later labor. For now you shall go out from the city. Now you're leaving, you're going into captivity. And you will dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Stop, period. Okay, up to this point, not good. Micah, you are bringing words that are not good. By the way, during that time, all the other false prophets of the day, you know what they were telling the people? Peace, safety, all these things you're hearing are not gonna happen to you. Things will continue to go well with you. Just a point. But Micah's coming along bringing truth, dealing with the actual sin and immorality of the people that they're neglecting. You're going to go into this country for a time. It's happening. It's going to happen, and it's part of God's plan. Now, bear with me. Look what he says now. There, in captivity, you shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you. And what these nations are saying about you is this, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Right, this is what these enemies are saying. They're looking to you, they're seeing their strength and they think that they finally got you. They finally have you and their desire is to destroy you. But God's saying, this is what they're saying, but verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them. God has gathered who? The enemies of the Lord as sheaves for the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. What is God saying? Yeah, I'm using these people for my purposes. Right now, it seems contradictory and counterintuitive to what I would do for my people. Let them come in and destroy you, take you into captivity. Yes, because you will not listen or turn. I must discipline and I must purify you. So I'm going to use your enemies. But the whole ultimate plan of this is what I'm letting them do will gather them in so they will become sheaves for the threshing floor. Just like the grain, you have to beat out and you have to destroy and you have to throw it up in the air, they will be destroyed by God. And the very thing that they think that they're doing that's bringing them victory will destroy them. Fast forward now to this little baby born in a manger who lives a life in the last three years of his ministry. He comes on the scene and he starts to preach repentance and faith and he begins to heal people miraculously and save them. And he starts to talk about him being God and king and the one they've been waiting for. And they slowly desire to plan a mutiny against him and they take Jesus through Satan entering Judas to betray him and they get him and they're able to finally exact their plan to destroy this Jesus who is a nuisance to them and they crucify him. 
They crucify the baby that was born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, also little. They kill him in an excruciating, agonizing way. And Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And that thing that God let the devil do killed the devil once and for all. And sin has no more power. And no king will ever accomplish that or has ever. And it has already been done, church. We sit here thousands of years later reflecting on the Christmas story, not anticipating the Messiah to come and deal with sin. He's already dealt with it. That means you who are still in bodies that struggle, you do not need to fear the condemnation and the wrath of God because his grace and his mercy has taken care of it forever. The last enemy to be defeated, scripture says, is death. In the second advent, Jesus is coming. We do await him coming back to do what? To be the ruler in Israel that Micah prophesied over. That he is, yes, our king now, but he is going to come and he's going to deal with sin and death once and for all. It'll be no more and he will rule. And his new heavens and his new earth will be as it should be. And it's as It is as what we're looking for and anticipating, what the world is hoping for, looking for in their own ways, in their own people, in their own devices, but they'll never find. Which is why we need to tell them, hey, listen, this is the plan. This is the story of Christmas. You see this Messiah born for you and that all who believe in him shall be forgiven. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ever lasting life. One more verse I want to read to you. God's deliverance comes in his time and his ways. Let me bring it home for you. You know, we can think about what it'd be like to be an Israelite going through some of these things like, God, you don't love us. Why would you take us through this? What are you doing in my life, God? So many things that I experience here on earth that are so painful, so exhausting, so excruciating. I can't take it anymore. I want to give up. I don't know. Some thoughts maybe you've had just being human, maybe being a Christian, maybe beginning to think God's left you, given up on you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But you better believe that the discipline of the Lord is a part of our life and it is good. He lets it in. And actually the testing of the Lord comes into our life to grow our faith. We are going to experience, not unlike our brothers in Israel, hard things in life. But God is always working his plan and his time and in his way And it's always, always going to work out for your good and bring deliverance and it will come. First Corinthians chapter two. I want to close with this. Paul going on about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And verse eight says this, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not 
have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The wisdom of God to use weakness and seemingly insignificance to even allow the enemies of God to have their way. They did not understand all of this was working against them, not for them, and working for the people of God, not against them. As you go into this Christmas time, as you're around family and friends, remember the significance, the real significance in your Savior Jesus and what he came to do and what he's left us to carry out into the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, God, your love, your mercy. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for this beautiful story that is so interwoven with mystery and poetry and artistry that all fits together and invigorates our hearts and our minds. So we can come to the conclusion of this, that you are good, you are powerful, and in you is the hope and the peace and the joy we need. It is in you. You've given this to us. So, so lift our hearts now as a summit church that we had leave this place totally confident and, and, and totally secured with peace and joy that our Savior has come. And we have a king and a ruler that's worth dying for and giving our life for. We pray this all in his name. Amen.